Today we conclude our study in the life of Gideon. Today we are not going to continue in the way we have for the previous four messages to look at it from the perspective of Gideon, but instead to look at it from our day and our age. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn with me and read along as I read aloud from God's Word. Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. As we read about this powerful judge in the history of the people of Israel. You have to realize that this is sort of at the tail end of the story that people are familiar with. The story has gone up to this point that Gideon was called by the Lord to defeat the Midianites and the eastern people who were their allies. And the part where God cut his number of fighting men from 32,000 down to 300 just occurred. And... They went out and they surrounded the Midianite camp and they blew their trumpets and they broke their pitchers and they shone their torches and the Midianite uh, and their allies were routed at that point. Now this is the part that continues on from there. There's some very interesting parts in this passage, Judges chapter 8. Many things that would seem uh, quite shocking to us in our day and age. But it's beneficial for us to look at God's Word and to realize that God is the one who instructs His people. And we need to learn from His instruction to people in the past, even as we follow His instructions for us today. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. But he answered them, What have I accomplished? Compared to you, aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer, which is where Gideon lived with his family? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread, they are worn out, and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said to him, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel and made the same request to them, but they answered as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. A hundred and twenty thousand swordmen had fallen. Now Zeba and Zalmunna, Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Jogbaha and fell upon the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Perez. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna. 
<clears throat> about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the ten- tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Then he asked Zeba and Zalmunna, What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, Those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, Kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeba and Zalmunna said, Come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. (coughs) The Lord will rule over you. (coughs) And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, We'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Thus Midian was subsided before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. Jeroboam, son of Joash, another name, of course, for Gideon, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Let us pray. Dear Lord, as we come to your word, oftentimes as a result of the distance in time and the difference in cultures, it is difficult to understand your message for us. And I pray that as we look at your word together this morning, that you would draw lessons clearly to each one of us. Your word would continue to work with power in our lives and in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that my words would be faithful to your word, because your word is holy and righteous. In Jesus' name, amen. Of all the qualities and the excitement that we have witnessed up to this point in the life of Gideon, we come to what may be the most interesting part of his life as we move beyond the fabulous route in which 300 defeated 120,000 in that camp as the 120,000 were in such a panic they turned and cut each other down. This latter part of the battle, when they are chasing the rest of the forces and the kings, and the summary of the rest of Gideon's life gets little attention quite frequently, we will benefit from looking at this to see in this time that that is described in Judges chapter 8 what we can learn about godly leadership from Gideon. And so let us look then at leadership according to Gideon. 
according to the example that he set and that was established by him. As we look at what Gideon did when he had gone through this route of 300 over 120,000, we find that the thing he did immediately following that, and the reason he had 300, of course, was the Lord said, I want to accomplish this victory by my power so that you can never say, we did it through our power. And so there was an exclusion. There was a period of time when Gideon was not able to employ this, uh, this example of leadership, which is to seek allies. He did it starting out and the Lord cut away his allies because the Lord had a message to present. 300 against 120,000 is impossible odds. But then when that period was gone, the immediate thing that Gideon did, we read at the end of chapter 7, Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out and they pursued the Midianites. And then in verse 24, Gideon sent messengers throughout the whole country of Ephraim saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. Gideon sought allies. He called out the men of Naphtali, of Asher, and all Manasseh, and he sought allies in a larger scale than that, at which point he failed to make allies. Any great work requires allies to accomplishment. If you look at the world wars, World War I and World War II, there were allies and there were Axis forces. People who want to accomplish a great work, leaders who want to accomplish a great work, seek allies. They seek to accomplish, to increase their accomplishments by bringing other people into the mix. As we look at the work of Christ, what do we see that he did early on in his ministry? He sought allies. He chose 12 disciples to be with him in his work, to magnify and to multiply the work that he was accomplishing. <clears throat> and there were many more than the 12 disciples who were his followers, who were able, during the time that he was alive, before his crucifixion, and much more powerfully following his resurrection and his ascension, to carry on the work that he had begun and taught them in a much more multiplied and magnified way as it spread throughout the world. Those who do not seek allies may make great achievements, but they rarely change the world without making believers and allies among the public. So as we look at the example of Gideon, we must realize that as a great leader and as a godly leader, those who would be mighty leaders will not look to alienate people. People, I like the, I like the parable, the allegory of, of the river. <clears throat> people who are streams and remain streams and never join the river don't water the land. They water a few dry corners. And so if you would be a godly and powerful leader, or you would accomplish much for God, you must realize that God will call upon you to make allies, to seek allies, to find people who will join with you in the work. That is why the church is not called individuals for Christ. 
Instead, it is called the body of Christ, which is made up of many parts, which together, joining together, allied together, united together, form a whole, which functions as a whole, not as individual parts. In seeking allies, Gideon also made friends. What does it say in Proverbs? A friend is is, is one who shows himself to be friendly. How did Gideon show himself to be friendly to those he sought as his allies? We find this demonstrated so vividly in the beginning of chapter 8. Gideon demonstrated humility, making peace in order to encourage unity. Now the Ephraimites said to Gideon, and what they had done is they had captured two of the Midianite princes at the end of chapter 7. They captured two of the princes, and then they got together with Gideon after he'd called them out, and they'd done a little bit of their work and had great results. And they said, what is this? You went to war and you didn't let us know. I can't believe it. They said, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. This is a test of a leader. Is a leader in seeking to make allies willing to make friends? Is a leader in seeking to make allies willing to demonstrate humility and to make peace something that he or she strives for? A godly leader will use humility to make allies into friends so that there might be peace and a working towards one goal as a group. So what did Gideon say? Did he say, well, who asked you anyway? That would sound like a natural response, right? They criticized him sharply. He's on edge. He's been running and running and running, trying to chase 15,000 with 300 men. And you notice the odds still continue to be 300 against, which means what? It means that in that route of 120,000, there wasn't one of his men who was killed. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. But Gideon, exhausted, God was the one who had cut him down to 300 and prevented him from scouring the countrysides and saying, come one, come all, join us. We're going to have a battle and we need all the help we can get. He didn't even come up with an answer that jumps to the front of most critical minds, which might be, well, I figured if I asked you, you wouldn't be interested in coming anyway. So there. No, what did he say? He answered them, What have I accomplished compared, compared to you? What have I, I mean, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of your grapes, Ephraim's grapes, better than the full grape harvest of my hometown, Abiezer? After all, God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? That this, their resentment against him subsided. When people are willing to be humble and to seek to make peace, not peace at any cost, but peace at the cost of personal pride. That's what Gideon made peace at, the cost of personal pride. When people are willing to do this, they will find that in most cases, those whom they're seeking to make peace with respond in the exact same way the Ephraimites did. The resentments will subside. Things will die down. Things will quiet down. There's no reason for anger, for upset, when when the flames are not fanned on one side. 
Many people just simply do not have the ability to put their egos aside in order to promote unity and teamwork. You and I must ask ourselves, in seeking allies, in making allies, do we have what I guess you could call the guts to be humble, not to insist that all the praise goes to us. Now, if you read that and think about Gideon's comments, what have I accomplished compared to you? Well, look at Scripture. Whose name is in Scripture? Gideon's, right? Who are those Ephraimites? Who knows? Just a bunch of Ephraimites, right? Unnamed the unnamed Ephraimites. (laughs) But then there was Gideon, who with 300 men defeated 120,000 through the power of God, plus 15,000 more as we see. (coughs) Gideon was not interested in taking the glory. He was interested in making allies, in uniting the people of Israel. (coughs) My father used to speak of big men and little men. Now, if you've had someone in your family, or if you've tended to use those descriptive terms uh, yourself. He also used to speak of people being divided into birds, horses, and puddings, but we won't get into that division. (laughs) Think about that for a second. Okay, okay. You don't want to. But he used to talk about big people and little people. He was not speaking of their size in physical terms. My father was generally about my size, average. But he was speaking of this quality of humility and the ability to befriend and to soothe angry people was a large measure of what he was talking about when he differentiated between the big people in the world and little people in the world. To him, the little people of the world held grudges. And when they were wronged, they spent the rest of their time looking for ways to get even. While the big people look for opportunities to go biblically the second mile, when asked to go one mile, willingness to go an extra mile voluntarily. Opportunities to swallow their pride. People who took the opportunities to swallow their pride and to make peace instead of promoting rivalries and tensions and awkwardness. That's been a distinction which is a biblical distinction, I think, but it's been a, a, a distinction that has been helpful to me. More helpful than the puddings and the birds and the horses. <laughs> That's facial makeup. If you hear <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> Big people and little... <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> it's helpful to think of people in terms of that because it helps you to understand what is important in life. Do you want to be considered a little person... Or do you want to be a big person? Gideon was a man who understood that unity was more important than praise for himself. <clears throat> what else did he do? <clears throat> Although Gideon made peace with humility, with those who could be his allies and friends, nevertheless, he was also busy doing something else. He was busy marking out the enemies. He was busy marking out the enemies. He asked more people than were willing to, to be his allies, didn't he? The men of Succoth and Peniel. Will you ally yourself with me? Uh, Just in a very small way. Will you give us food? We're dying of exhaustion and hunger. 
please feed us. <coughs> and the man of Succoth and Peniel said, Oh, forget it. You haven't won yet. You haven't brought back the severed hands of Zeba and Zalmuna to prove to us that you accomplished what you're pretending to accomplish. And who knows, but they might defeat you and then we'd suffer for it. We have examples throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, of godly leaders marking out enemies. Can you think of people who marked out their enemies? David. King David. When he was in his last days and he had just anointed, had Solomon anointed as king, he said to Solomon, his final words, among his final words were, Praising friends and marking enemies. He said to Solomon, You take care of Joab. Now you remember that there were, well, there were, actually what happened was there were two um, um, chiefs of the army of Israel who came to David at various times in history. And they sought to be united with him. <clears throat> And what happened was Joab stabbed both men and killed them in cold blood for various reasons. Jealousy, of course, being part of the reason. But David said to Solomon, Now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zeruiah, did to me. 1 Kings chapter 2. What he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle, and with that blood stained the belt round his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. And then he went on to say, Keep watch over Barzillai's children because they have blessed me. You bless them as well. And then he went on to mark enemies again. Verse 8, And remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Jira, the Benjamite from Bahirim, who called down bitter curses on me. And he tells Solomon the same thing. <clears throat> we look at the New Testament, <clears throat> and we may think of to ourselves, well, marking out enemies is not something that Christians do, is it? Paul marking Demas. He marked Demas, he marked Alexander the metal worker in the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Chapter 4, verse 14. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. Now you say, well, he spoke some words about him. He didn't do anything against him. You're right. But he marked him not only for Timothy to whom he wrote he marked him for the New Testament church he marked him for history to come we know about Demas we know about Alexander the metal worker we also know about Diotrephes who John marked in his third epistle these are men who were marked as enemies we tend to think that Christians do not acknowledge enemies but we have enemies and if we spiritualize the story of Gideon and bring it down to our time, one of the lessons that we must learn is that you and I are in spiritual warfare. Scripture is full of pointing to the fact that we are in spiritual warfare. That that warfare, although we cannot see it, is a real, alive warfare. 
Now, it's important for us, if we are going to be leaders, to mark out enemies. Be very careful what you do beyond marking them out. Because Christ has told us that we must love our enemies and pray for them. We're moving to another scriptural allegory. We see in scripture in John chapter 14 that Jesus said that the false shepherds... That there will be false shepherds who will not take care of the sheep. And that there will be wolves who will seek to come among the sheep. So we must mark out the enemies so that we make sure that under no circumstances do we hire them to be shepherds of the sheep. We must be cautious as Christians to know who are true spiritual enemies of Christ. Not to trust them with spiritual things. Because if we do, then we are in great danger of allowing the wolf to go free in amongst the sheep. Now, the, the way that allegory is speaking of in John chapter 14, we would tend to think, well, that just means that you must make sure that you don't have leaders in the church who are spiritual enemies. Well, that's part of it, but it goes much beyond that. That we need to be aware of the fact that there are enemies to the faith of Jesus Christ. And we must not be hesitant to acknowledge that fact. Because we are utterly foolish if we pretend that enemies are friends. We must treat them with love. We must pray for them. But to allow them to have the rights and the privileges and the responsibilities of brothers and sisters in Christ is likely to severely damage our faith and the faith of other people. What else did Gideon do as a leader? He set and he exacted consequences. In other words, he set up law and he executed punishment. He didn't back down. When he spoke to the officials of Succoth and the men of Peniel, and he said, please give us bread, and they, and they mocked him. They mocked him and they mocked his little army. He said, all right, because you have done this. <clears throat> in essence, what they were doing in the midst of this was defying God and God's power. Because you have done this, When we return victorious, this is what's going to happen. Leaders need to be willing to lay down the law, to lay out the consequences, and to carry them out. Many leaders have failed because they have been unwilling to set down a line and not budge from that line. Neville Neville Chamberlain is one of the people who in our time has the worst reputation as a leader. Having been quoted as saying, we have peace in our time, having come back in negotiations with Hitler in Germany. He was applauded by the people within years. He couldn't even go out from his home because he was so detested by the people of Great Britain. He never laid down the line. And if he laid down the line, he backed it up and 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 he backed it up. Now we think of this being perhaps some of us being leaders in our work situations or in other places <clears throat> and we say well most of the laws may, may be set out for us and so you know it's just a question of carrying out the consequences that go with those we get down to the smallest unit of life the smallest unit of organized cohesive life and that is the family we must put this principle to work in our families. 
If we are going to be godly leaders, we must be willing to lay down the law and let it lie where we laid it down. Now, it doesn't mean when we find out we've made a mistake, we're not willing to change things. But it means that we must be people of conviction who are willing to say, thus far and no farther. But if you go farther, this is what's going to happen. Now, that's where many leaders fail as well. When people step over the line, they won't redraw the line, but neither will they exact punishment. And you see this occur in family life on a frequent basis. I told you to stop that. One. Two. (laughs) Oh, sorry. I'm laughing again and nobody's laughing. Uh, When you see that kind of thing happen, sometimes it's helpful. It's not that it's improper in any circumstance. But we have to say, are we willing to say, here's the line, do not cross it, and if you cross it, these are the consequences. Now, if you've made your choice, you've made your decision, you've set down a line, and it's a godly line, do not fail to carry out the consequences if they are appropriate. Do not fail to carry out the consequences. But what did Gideon do? Well, if you look at part of what Gideon did, you see that he was also willing to do hard and unpleasant work. You think of what it said about many successful leaders. Who was Chuck Colson to Richard Nixon? What was the phrase in which Chuck Colson has described himself or he's been described? Anybody. He was Nixon's... Right, he was Nixon's hatchet man. Right, he wielded the axe. And when the heads were ready for cutting off, he did it. Through the example of Gideon, we see that godly leaders must be willing to do the hard and unpleasant work and not constantly shuffle it off to other people who are the hatchet men. But you do that, you do that. Doesn't mean these things aren't appropriate from time to time. What did Gideon do? He said to his son Jether, all right, Ziba and Zalmunna must be executed. Go to it. And his son, because of his youth, because he was afraid, he would not draw his sword. And Ziba and Zalmunna then proceeded to taunt Gideon. Ha! Look at that! Nobody's willing to cut our heads off. Oh, you're chickens. Gideon took out a sword. Boom. That was it. Godly leaders are willing to do the hard and unpleasant work, and they do not constantly shuffle it off to other people. <clears throat> We're coming to the end. <clears throat> we see that once all this was done, the people got together and they said, Oh, Gideon! Oh, Gideon! What a great man! What a great leader! What a great victory! We would like to make you the king! Can you think of a time when that happened in American history? George Washington, for example. (coughs) After the great victory of the Revolutionary War, the people came to him and said, Sir George, your honor, whatever they called him at that point, General Washington, we would like you to be king. Now, what do we find Gideon doing? (coughs) He said, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Godly leaders refuse adulation. 
That means they refuse to allow themselves to be, be, be placed in a place in which God alone should hold. You can't avoid people regarding you as a hero and as a role model. But you can, as a leader, avoid people placing you in the place where they worship you instead of worshiping God. <clears throat> and I think it is something that we would do, why, do well to observe and to note in our day and age particularly. The people who have accomplished great things, Christians who have accomplished great things, do not need to deny the fact that they've accomplished anything. But instead, say, I refuse to take God's place in your lives. God alone must be worshipped. Do not worship me. I will not be king. God is your king. Worship him. <clears throat> and there's a trend that's reflected so clearly in this, that the people said to him, you, your son, your grandson. In other words, we want your family to become royalty. There's such a tendency in our day and age for people who have accomplished something. The mighty spiritual leaders, for instance... All of a sudden, it's a dynasty. It's not an individual who God has used to do mighty things. It's a dynasty. And where there is a godly leader, then that godly leader's family all of a sudden is regarded with the same adoration and aura of worship that that leader is regarded with. God does not take people because they are part of flesh and blood family. He takes people and uses them because he chooses to and because they are available, not because of who they are related to. <clears throat> what Gideon did, we come to the last two and they're short. Gideon sought to be a role model, leading the people on a different course. <coughs> what he did is he went back home. And he said to the people before he went, please, each one of you give me an earring. Give me an earring. <coughs> Because I would like to make an ephod. And what the ephod was, was the part of the temple worship, tabernacle worship that was instituted back in Moses' day. So he was seeking to be, to point the people to worship of God. He was saying to them, okay folks, I'm not going to be king, but I would like to do something that would cause us to turn back to where we should be. Let's not get in this mess again. And finally, we see in verse 27, Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophir, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. People don't like to come out with that ending to the life of Gideon, do they? People do not like to come out to the fact that Gideon made an ephod, which was to turn the people back to worship of the Lord, and instead they turned it into a god like they had everything else as a god, and they didn't worship the Lord, they worshiped the ephod. What lesson does this teach us about leaders? <clears throat> it teaches us that leaders fail people. Leaders fail people. You and I should not be surprised when Christian leaders fail. What we must recognize ultimately from this whole message and from this small conclusion to a glorious life is that God is the one who we worship. We do not worship the leaders. The people who have succeeded greatly can fail at the end of a great success. And so if we are to be leaders, we need to be cautious of that. You have never been so successful that you cannot fail. You have never been so spiritually mature that you cannot fall. And we need to be aware of this for ourselves and we need to be aware of it as we look at godly leaders around us. 
Your faith isn't shaken. Your faith isn't destroyed when people fail. Gideon failed. The fact is, God remains the same. We worship Him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would teach us the lessons you desire for our hearts from your man Gideon. Thank you for his great successes through your power. Help us to learn from him that our lives may be different through your power. In Jesus' name, amen.